We will read um, from Galatians, obviously chapter 1, and we'll read the first ten verses. Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. Now I wonder if you've heard the phrase, a hill to die on. I wonder if you've used that phrase. I'm unsure nowadays what phrase has everyone's heard of. Um, I was in the school the other day and I mentioned the phrase, doubting Thomas. Now I didn't think the children would have heard of that, but I said to the children, oh, your, your, your teacher would have heard of that. And she kind of looked at me blankly, sort of thing. So oh, obviously she's not. And that's a bit embarrassing for me and probably for her as well. But the phrase, a hill to die on, a hill to die on. It's a figure of speech, of course, that comes from the military practice in warfare of capturing or holding a place. And it is so it is of such fundamental strategic importance that you or others would be prepared to die on that hill and hold that hill at all costs. So it's a military term. We can figure that, think of that in battle, can't we? Something so important that despite the difficulty and potential problems that might occur, we want to hold on to that. Now, of course, in life, we don't fight battles, literally, or hopefully not anyway. But we sometimes have to think, what is a hill to die on? Are we going to contend over everything. Every issue in life that we might disagree with, are we going to contend with others about it? Well, some people sometimes seem to start off like that, but they soon have to grow tired, they're tired of it. We don't fight over every little battle. But, tonight, and in the following weeks, as we'll go through this letter to the Galatians, we will understand quite clearly that the Gospel of God's grace is a hill to die on. This is a hill to die on. This is of such fundamental importance, the gospel of 
God's grace. We'll discover the truth of the gospel. Quite clearly, we'll see that tonight. Must not be distorted or diluted in any way. To do that is dishonouring to God. It is blasphemous to do that. And it is, of course, severely damaging to his people. Severely damaging to his people. That's why Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. Yes, we're going to see harsh words as we go through this letter. We'll see some harsh words tonight. We'll see words later on. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But they come from Paul who has a pastoral heart. Yes, a love for God and a desire to present the truth of God. But a love for his people. And as Paul has chosen this hill to die on, he sets us an example as well. It's not a matter of personal preference. You know, they want that, I want this. That's not what he's going to argue and contend for. This is of fundamental strategic importance. So the letter to the Galatians. I would contend, and I think many would, there was a letter written to those churches that Paul helped plant on his first missionary journey. You might remember that in Acts chapter 14. There was Poseidon, Antioch, there was Iconium, there was Lystra, and there was Derby. And uh, I hope you can picture in your minds a map of Turkey, or you can see that. You've got Cyprus below and Turkey above, Israel to the right. The reason I say that, again, uh, I've uh, been in the schools in recent times, we've been going through Paul. We, go, we have a lesson on Paul, and I put this map on the wall, and, uh, or on the screen rather. And I say, there's Israel, there's Cyprus, and so oh, I've been on holiday, some will say. And I say, what's this big country up above here? What's that big country? Hands go up. America! No, it's not America. No, no, no. And there'll be all sorts of suggestions. Uh, and of course, the answer is Turkey. Turkey. And at the south of Turkey there is where South Galatia, as we understand it, were. Now some people think this letter was written to those in North Galatia. If you want to explore that, then read a commentary. I'm not going to say anything about that tonight. I don't think it's worthwhile saying it. I don't think it's beneficial at all, or really helpful for most people. But if you want to explore that, uh, go and read a good commentary. And if you want to know what one of those is, I'll be pleased to direct you. I have a feeling not many people are going to be interested, to be honest. The churches in South Galatia. Paul had a real heart for the people of God. When people came to Christ, he had a real love for them. Can you remember how it was in Acts chapter 14 that what happened they, they, in, when he went to Lystra? Uh, they stoned him, dragged him outside the city wall, and they left him there for dead. They thought Paul was dead. Well, he was severely injured, obviously, wasn't he? And he moves on to Derby after that. But what does he do? What does he do after Derby? Well, what he does is this. He goes back to Lystra. I wonder what advice in the 21st century Paul would have got in Derby. It's a bit dangerous. It's unsafe, Paul. Shouldn't really do that. But Paul didn't. Paul, in the work of God, took enormous risks to do God's work. And he goes back to Lystra to strengthen and to help the people there, to help the believers there. And Paul 
preached, as we know, in those places a gospel where law-keeping didn't feature. Salvation was by faith alone, in Christ alone, through God's grace alone. It was the grace of God from beginning to end. But what had happened, as we'll see, is that people had come in, false teachers had come in, Judaizers, so-called, had come into that area and around the churches, not just one, that influence had spread and they had come in and swayed some of the believers. And maybe some of them weren't believers, but even the believers had been swayed, or many of them had been swayed by the false teachers, by perhaps the, their orator, oratory skills, by perhaps the, the sort of sum of what they were teaching was brought to these people, and they were being taken away from the grace of God in the gospel. But now they had to perhaps to be saved, or to, they needed to be circumcised, or some other things that they might have to do of their own volition, of their own works, that they might be saved. Or, or, to gain greater acceptance before God. Although they were saved, well, you need to do this as well. You need to do this as well, or have this experience as well. There was something else needed other than knowing Jesus Christ and trust in Christ in your life and knowing the grace of God in your life. To mature in Christ, you need something else. And so that had come, and that was prevalent, and Paul was compelled, constrained, to write to these believers because of his heart for them. And what we'll see in these six chapters in the book of Galatians is in chapters 1 to 2, Paul really um, majors on um, his authority. The, The claim would have been... That though Paul was well-meaning in his preaching, he was on his own. He was a bit of a lone ranger, so to speak. And so Paul answers that in chapters 1 to 2. That he wasn't out on a limb on his own. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul sort of gets to the accusation, accusation there. That perhaps though his preaching was good, it was insufficient. It left out details that should have been included. And so there was something lacking in what Paul preached. And in chapters 3 and 4 we see Paul's answer to that. That he preached fully and only the gospel of God's grace. And if in case you think this this stuff is all, well that's all 2,000 years ago, 2 millennia ago. What's that got to do with us today? There are still people today, as, as, we, as we know, who, I mean, if you look at the vast, what is called Christianity in the media, if you look at what is called Christianity in the media, then in that case you would have to say that the vast majority of that is a false gospel. A false gospel. Because the, the, the media will call the Catholic Church Christianity. It's a false gospel. I have a, a friend, I remember, yeah, I do have a friend, I know some of you look surprised, but I do. Um, a, a friend I was speaking to once, and he, he said, oh, I can remember, you know, when I got saved, you know, I trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, but when I got baptised, that was me, filled with the Holy Spirit, I was saved. Well, he was wrong. He's wrong. But there are many 
and they seem sincere but they are sincerely wrong and with devastating consequences for them if they remain in that error in chapters 5 and 6 Paul addresses the issue that the law was necessary for good living and life without law keeping would lead to lawlessness but Paul answers that uh, in chapters 5 and 6 speaking about a spirit filled life and of course in chapter 5 it is that chapter where you get the fruit of the spirit if we live by the spirit and he speaks about that so the book breaks up into those sort of three main sections if you want and the book of Galatians is really then, or the letter to the Galatians, is a letter that brings before us the freedom that Christians have from legalism. And of course, not a freedom to do what we want, but a freedom to do what we ought. We sung a hymn, Now I Am Free, and that, that's true. That's true. Free to do what we ought, okay, by, led by the Holy Spirit. And just one more thing on the introduction, it is interesting that as you read through Galatians, and it doesn't take you long to read through the letter to the Galatians, that some people in time have called it a mini-Romans. Galatians was probably the first New Testament letter written, probably the first New Testament letter written. And if we remember the book of Romans, we remember, what is that? That's, a, that's 16 chapters writing out the, a systematic reasoning for the gospel a systematic reasoning for the gospel but just have a look just quickly skim, lift up your eyes if you can or put down your eyes chapter 3 chapter 3 in the book of Galatians uh, and you just see there no in verse 7 oh let's go to verse 6 Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness Know then that it is those who are faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And as you read that, and if you have a little knowledge of Romans, as I know you do, you'll think, well, that sounds like Romans chapter 4, doesn't it? And it very much is uh, like that. And of course, in Romans chapter 4, the argument is expanded, enlarged. But so some of these things that we see in Galatians are then fully developed in the book of Romans. But what we're going to do tonight is look at these first ten verses then. And I've got three little A's, if, if you find that helpful. We're going to think of Paul's authority, his God-given authority. Authority, verses 1 to 5. In verses 6 to 9, amazement is the word we're going to think of. And then verse 10, and verse 10 alone, approval. Authority, amazement, and approval. And so Paul is going to establish his authority because that was under attack. Those people who had came in and attacked his authority, and of course that would be a key thing, often is, that's how people uh, today like to destroy someone else's argument, they'll aim to destroy the person. Okay, destroy that person, his character or his credentials or both. And so the credentials of Paul were under attack. And what we notice then, in these first five verses, where often, if you were to look at the letters that Paul wrote, often there's a word of commendation, there's a word of thanks, you know, I thank God for this in you. But that is notably lacking in these first 
verses of this one. Yes, Paul has a pastoral heart. He has a care for the people of God. But he wants to get right to the issue. He reminds them that he is an apostle. An apostle who is not from men. It is not men who chose him. Men weren't the agency through which he got chosen. But it was directly from Jesus Christ and God the Father. So Paul is an apostle. Now we think, of course, and rightly so, of those 12 men who were selected by the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 3, for example, has the list of them there. And the Lord Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So there was that original 12, Judas included, who went out, commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered, trained up by him and equipped, and they went out, and after he had gone, of course, they had great authority. The the original apostles had enormous authority. Of course, Judas had gone by then. They themselves, as you might remember in, in the early chapter of Acts, elected themselves, Matthias, who would be one who would take the place of Judas. And in 2 Corinthians 12, you know, it says there, the signs of a true apostle, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so these apostles, in that sense, had unique gifts, unique sign gifts given specifically to them to authenticate the message that they were delivering. And you might remember as the church expanded from Jerusalem, as the Samaritans heard the message, as then the Gentiles heard the message, it was the apostles who would come from Jerusalem and lay their hands upon people thus saying that they were in the one church there wasn't going to be a Jewish church a Samaritan church and a Gentile church and how it was we see it in Acts chapter 8 with those at Samaria you might remember they received the word of God and as Rob said today Peter had great he was of great importance and he was Uh, Peter and John went down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on them. But they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the apostles had this unique authority, and this work given to them, that they would authenticate that which was happening, first of all, in the Samaritans, in Acts chapter 10, we see it uh, in the Gentiles, you remember in Cornelius's house as well, so that there would not be these three separate churches. There'd be one church, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ together. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. And of course, that is very familiar language to what we see in the latter chapters of the book of Galatians. So Paul was an apostle born out of time, as he says, but he certainly was an apostle with great authority given to him, not by man, but by God. And we remember, it is in Acts chapter 9, wasn't it? 
that Paul on the way to Damascus to persecute the Christians became a Christian himself. And the Lord said to Ananias that he is to go to Paul, he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the children of Israel. For I must show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Paul, an apostle, as you remember, commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And you notice, as Paul says that, he links the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to that. You know, and it's interesting, just in these early verses, thinking of the great problem in Galatia, denying the grace of God was sufficient... And perhaps in doing that you're denying the Lord Jesus Christ himself is sufficient. That Paul brings before them that God himself found Christ entirely sufficient and satisfactory in his death because he raises him from the dead. There's a group of believers with Paul. All the brothers who are with me. We don't really know where he wrote this letter from. We know who he wrote it to. We know roughly when he wrote it. But who, where he was at that time would be open to speculation. But Paul was in the work of the ministry. And what I always find interesting is this. And it is worthwhile saying this, I think. You know, when I first started reading my Bible, I had this idea that, that Paul was a bit of a lone ranger, if you like. He was often on his own going all these places, you know, on his own going to these and preaching. But actually, once I started to read it a little bit more carefully, it obviously wasn't. More often than not, he was with others in a team, working. And there's a great picture there, just going a little side route off our main point, that it is quite important in Christian ministry to work together for encouragement and accountability both of those things and you could say more things as well so there were brothers not apostles but they were with Paul supporting him and ministering to him and ministering with him and as we have noted the error had occurred across Galatia. So there's a little bit of uniqueness here, that this wasn't just to one church, like the church at Corinth, or Thessalonica, or Philippi. This is churches, assemblies of the Lord's people. Those, the word assembly is those who come together and meet together to those assemblies in this area of Galatia. And Paul's welcome for them, or Paul's words to them, grace and peace again flow from the gospel. The gospel is a message of grace and peace. Grace is the source of it. It is God's grace. And peace is the result of it. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God has done. For each and every person, his grace has been shown towards him, his unconstrained good will. He chose us before the foundation of this world to be in Christ. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. In grace, he sends his son into this world to take the punishment for our sin upon the cross. In grace, the Holy Spirit 
regenerates us, enabling us to respond in faith to the gospel message. By grace we are adopted, by grace we are kept, and by grace one day we'll be glorified. The the message of the gospel is a message of God's grace towards men and women. And peace with God is the result. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the one, as you read in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins. Can you understand, as Paul is going to address the issue of the gospel of grace, he brings immediately into their sight, it was Christ himself who gave himself of his grace, by his grace, because of his grace, he gave himself for our sins. And it is because of him giving himself that we are delivered. See, they were being told there's something else you need to do. There's something else that you must do, some works that you must do, something that you must experience. But just in these early verses... Paul is demonstrating quite clearly to them and to us again, reminding us that it was the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself. There was no greater offering that could be given. There was no alternative offering that could be satisfying to God. But it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that perfect man who was truly God, gave himself for our sin and not for his own of course that was the big problem there was separation and condemnation for us but through Christ there is reconciliation and there is justification he was the effective substitute who would deal completely and utterly completely with the sin problem to think there is something else Something that you can do. As my friend thought, thinks, sadly, that being by baptised, that now completes the work. Takes away from the work of Christ. Anything that we add to the gospel of God's grace diminishes the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is why it is a hill to die on. This is why. Not just that, of course, it dishonours the Lord Jesus Christ, but to those who embrace it, let me say it in strong words, because Paul's going to use strong words, it's a damnable heresy. Leads people away. From trusting in Christ alone. It is only through trusting in Christ alone that we can be saved. He gave himself for our sins. Such was his love. Later on, Paul would write to the Galatians and make it so personal. Instead now of our sins, in chapter 2, verse 20, it is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me that is very personal isn't it the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me so if you're a Christian 
And you know this, that he gave himself for you personally. Amazing love, amazing grace that indeed has been shown to each and every one of us. That we might be rescued from this present evil age. The idea of being from this present evil age is not to do with time, but it's to do with a system. Okay, it's not to do with a time, but it is a system. It is the world system and the values and the beliefs that this world system holder is. The world lies in the lap of the evil one, Satan himself. He is real, of course. And what Christ has done and is giving of himself for our sins rescues us from this age. So we live in this world. Yes, we live in it. But we, as is often said, are not of this world. We have been rescued from that. And it is by God's grace. And it is by God's grace that we can live differently. By the power of the Spirit who indwells each and every one of us. And so it is introductory. And Paul brings his authority. And his authority is not of himself. It is from God. And the authority is from the message that comes from God. He says it is to whom God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And the congregation sometimes would say amen as well. But it is, isn't it? It's the grace of God. And because of that, the glory is his forever and forever. Friends, we bow before that, don't we? We, if we, like, we, we bend on our knees to that. That God has shown such grace and he has promised such grace to take you home. And that grace will always, the praise of that grace will always be on you. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. So Paul's authority, but his then, his astonishment or his amazement. Pick whatever you want. I'm astonished. I marvel. That you are so quickly deserting him. You know, the word marvel was used twice by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he marveled at the faith of a centurion. You know, someone who was outside, if you like, Israel, outside uh, generally that belief system. But he marveled at such a faith that this man would believe that Christ could utter the word and his servant would be healed. But the Lord Jesus Christ also marveled. Another time, in his hometown, because of that unbelief. Unbelief. He was amazed, astounded. And Paul is astounded that they are quickly deserting. They have turned into spiritual turncoats. That military term, they've turned away. And instead of embracing and trusting in the gospel of God's grace, and now including work keeping into it, either to be saved or to maintain salvation or to improve, to mature in Christ. And it saddens him. But you know, as I think of that, as I think of that, it reminds me, and it teaches me, and I think it should teach all of us here as well, that how we could be susceptible, if we could be susceptible to, 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 to false teaching, that we could turn away. So how much we need to pray 
for God to do that work in our life and how much we need to, to, to hear true teaching from God's word, to absorb ourselves in the true teaching of the word of God and to abhor false teaching in any shape or form, not to accommodate it in any way whatsoever because it is dangerous to our souls, to our spiritual well-being. You know, these people in Galatia, they were, some of them were undoubtedly were Christians and truly were who embraced it, but now their minds have been swayed, chipped away at. So it reminds us all, don't it, whatever age we're at, to guard our minds, to guard what goes into our minds, what we listen to, what we read. Because these people had been swayed away. They had been called by the grace of God, by the grace of Christ. That is the central theme of the gospel. His undeserved goodwill towards them. But now they're being trapped. And Paul says they are turning to a different one. Of course there's not a different one. There is one gospel message. There is one true message of the gospel. Again, I was just um, illustration from schools. I hope you'll not mind another one. That's where I spend sort of some of most of my sort of working life, if you like. Um, but it's very interesting because we've been going through Paul. A lot of the schools have been going through Paul recently, and on two separate occasions in two separate classrooms, as I've been speaking, hands have gone up because I speak about Paul in Athens and I speak there he was and he saw these statues he saw these temples and I said they were false gods and he stood up to them and he saw you know God um, God has overlooked your ignorance that's a message in the past he's overlooked your ignorance but now he commands you to repent because in the future he will judge this world through a man who is appointed Jesus Christ and hands have gone up and I said, and I say, yeah, question or statement. They said, that's not fair, is it? Because Paul's now just making them turn to his religion. And, uh, you know, so I, I get to, to answer that, you see. And um, so I, I said, well, there can only be one truth, can't there? You know, the one truth. You know, Paul says there's one true God. And they say, no, there's many gods that both can't be true, can it? Uh, and one of the people said, well, yeah, they did accept that. I said, you see, and then they said, well, but it was true for them, you see. Now, no one would have said that statement when I was at school, I don't think, you know, relative truth, you know, it's true for you, it's true for them, so whatever's true for you is okay. But that's a, that's a, that's a new concept. And in primary school pupils, other, upper primary schools, and maybe then all above, that, that's something what we deal with in this age we live. You know, if it's true for them, it must be true. That's nonsense nonsense and well I didn't say it's nonsense to this girl you, you know, I've got to speak a bit politely and, <laughs> and I, so I have to try my best obviously um, but I said well you know both cannot be true and she said well, it's true for them and I said I might believe in unicorns and they might be true for me but does it make it true and she said no I was going to say Father Christmas, but I was a bit concerned if they still believe, so I thought I'll leave that one. Oops, be okay, careful. Sorry. Uh, moving on. Uh, so you see where it was anyway. But there is one true message. There is one true message. 
And there's not a different gospel with a slightly different twist for those of a different culture, from those of a different background, from those of a different religion who are coming to it. There is one message in the gospel, and that embraces all ages and all peoples over all times. It is the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. And anything else is false. Anything else is false. Not nearly true, it's false. Now the teaching had troubled them. The teaching had troubled them. There are some who trouble you. And so as Paul's writing this letter, he know the minds of the people were not at peace. Trouble is the opposite of peace, of course. The Lord Jesus frequently spoke words so that his people might have peace. You know, sometimes we are troubled, and that can be a good thing, because we can be troubled about our sin or troubled about wrong belief. But frequently he spoke words to bring peace into their minds. The situation might remain the same. The situation, the circumstances might remain the same. But the desire for the Lord's people is that they might have peace. You know, John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Lord Jesus gives peace. You know, even as he spoke to his people about the last times, when there will be wars and rumours of wars, and that would be true. He says, be not troubled, for such things must be, but the end is not yet. So be at peace, don't be troubled about these things. Understand the plan of God, the sovereignty of God. To the Thessalonians, you know, he wrote there about, the, the, some had thought the day of the Lord had already happened. And words, or the, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, be not troubled, as that the day, the day of Christ is at hand. And so the teaching of God's word, the proclamation of God's word, is to bring peace where there is troubled minds. But the opposite was happened here, that these people had come in and they wanted to distort the gospel. Paul was amazed at though he wasn't amazed that they what people did come in, but he was amazed that they had turned away so quickly. And they had been they had fallen for it. They had fallen for it. You know, we have in our days that we people fall for scams, don't they? You know, a Nigerian prince has just died and it so happened that you were a second cousin of him. We've got 14 million for you. Can you send your bank details? And people fall for it. But people fall for false teaching. That's worse as well. And as Christians, you know, we need to develop discernment. We, we need to develop, if you like, biblical noses. What do I mean by that? That can sniff out error. I was reading that Morrisons are just now going to wipe away their best before dates on milk. And they're exhorting you uh, from now on to just smell it to see how it is, you see. Now, you can do that if you want. It's up to you. Um, but reminds us, that's what we need to do. We need to have discernment, all of us trained by the word of God empowered by the spirit of God to sniff out error and to not have anything to do with that because Paul says if anyone 
preaches something else, no matter who they are, even if it's an angel from heaven. Now he's using exaggeration here because an angel from heaven is not going to come and preach another gospel. He's using exaggeration. Like someone might say to you, I've told you a million times not to do that. Well, because that's not true, probably, but we get the point. Even if an angel from heaven came and preached another gospel, let him be accursed. You see, the truth outranks by far anyone's credentials. No matter who these people are who are coming, no matter who these people are who might be around in the world today, how eloquent they sound, what following they might have, if their message is not a true message of the gospel, well let's see what Paul says about them. Let them be accursed. That is strong language. It's the same Paul who writes later on about having gentleness. He's not contradicting himself here, by the way. He speaks about having gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit. But he says, let people who preach a false gospel be accursed. Let them be damned. The intensity and the severity of the statement demonstrates the seriousness of the issue and I guess one thing today what we see in the wider sphere is people or churches prepared to accommodate engage with those who preach something which is gospel different and they should not very clear Paul would have nothing to do that and he tells the others not to as well now how could he say that lastly approval now Paul could say this, and there's a lesson for us here. Because am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I a man pleaser or a God pleaser? We cannot be ultimately both. We cannot be ultimately both. If Paul was going to be a man pleaser, then he would get swayed along with the latest fad and the latest teaching. He'd just go along with her, and whatever people want to hear, he would tell them. I'll give you that. But he says, no. I'm going to remain true to what God has given me. I've been delivered a message. I'm going to deliver that message. I do it because I love God. I do it because I love you. So, I'm going to be a servant of Christ and not of man. He wasn't going to be obnoxious. He had a love for people. But his love for God and his love for people meant that he would give them that true message. I remember once a very a preacher you'd all know, and uh, he was speaking to his congregation, and he says this: "I will serve you, but I will not be mastered by you. I will serve you, but I will not be mastered by you." He had one master. That should be where we all are, the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself. But we will serve his people. But we will not be bound by their dictates and how they want us to go as well. So as we minister, as we serve, as we thought a little bit last week, do we look for the approval of the Lord or the approval of man? We cannot do both well. Let's just pray. Father, we give thanks that tonight we have been able to read your word, think of your word. 
And we've thought of the seriousness of the issue of false teaching. We've thought how we can be easily swayed. Help us, Lord, to just remember the lessons that are from yourself tonight. And may they have an impact on our lives, not just during this week, but in the weeks to come, and in the life of this assembly here. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.